Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Country Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Ken Burns' country music documentary hosted by Nate Wilcox and James Porter. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and James discuss Episode 2, Hard Times, covering country music during the Depression and World War II, and artists like Roy Acuff and Bob Wills, who dominated the era. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. I'm joined once again by James Porter, and we're continuing our discussion of Ken Burns' country music documentary. James, welcome back. How's it going, everybody? Going good, going good. So Steph was just dissing the Carter family, and, and it made me outraged. So I'm, I'm trying to calm Whoa. down and focus. I know. It's, <laughs> because Sarah Maybell. That's a hell of a, hell of a way to start. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I, we I just can't have it. But so so – Last week, we talked about episode one, which covered country music from prehistory to 1933 and the death of Jimmy Rogers. This one covers the Depression and World War II, and way heavier on the Depression than World War II. I felt like they kind of shoehorned that in. Yeah, probably more dramatic, you know. That's, that's what I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And 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 it's a lot. It's a lot of ground to cover. But but again, overall. I was pretty happy with this one. I, I could squawk that Ernest Tubb didn't get any airtime, but I'm hoping he's going to be in the next episode quite a bit. But otherwise, I thought they covered all the bases pretty well. Yeah, Ernest Tubb maintained his popularity for a while, so I figured if he doesn't make it now, he'll probably make it in the next two or three. You know? Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. he was he was a very very much a honky tonk post war kind of singer, even though. He does. He does start in this era, but yeah, they they continue the discuss, the coverage of the Carter family. They right. spotlight Gene Autry, Bob Wills, Roy A. Cuff, and Bill Malone. Bill Monroe, sorry, Bill Malone. Uh, is, and that's almost four different styles too. That lets you know how 
how alive the genre was, if you can call it a genre at this point, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And they were still calling it hillbilly at this point. Country has not been coined yet. I, yeah. I mean, it hasn't been adopted. I think Ralph Peer used it from time to time. But yeah, you've got Gene Autry, who's taken the Jimmy Rogers yodeling tradition. And, and Jimmy Rogers painted himself in cowboy garb or, or wore cowboy garb and really adopted the Texana thing. And Gene Autry took it even further west and, and created the, the singing cowboy icon, which right. is a massively popular genre through this whole era and into the early 1950s, I'd say. And if you've heard his early recordings where he was trying to do, a, well, not trying, but when he was doing these essentially white blues records, you know, the Gene Autry singing cowboy records, that's like a 180 degree turnaround, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And he also had the series of records where he's just totally cloning Jimmy Rogers and doing it for a different label. And they talk about that on the show that he was, he was working for, I think it was the Sears label. Yeah. And, had a different name, but you know, they're selling it at a discount. Same records as, as same songs as Jimmy Rogers, just cheaper and, and sung by Gene Autry doing a really close Jimmy Rogers impression. So for a guy who's who was down on his own singing and acting talents, he was actually a pretty gifted singer. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know he was that modest, but I mean, it's like he's actually quite good. I mean, I love his blues recordings, even though they're like slightly nasal. You know, but he seems to come in his in his own. Gene Autry does when he's doing songs like "Back in the Saddle." You know. Oh yeah, I mean he he perfected and crystallized this American icon, the singing cowboy. A big part of you know westerns had been part of films from the beginning. I think the Great Train Robbery might have been one of the first narrative films ever made, but. Yeah. Autry brings it into the sound era with the singing cowboy and just creates a whole new thing and a myth. Uh, there was no such, I mean, I'm sure there were cowboys that were singing, but this whole guy in the white suit, um, you know, yodeling along the range, this was created in the 1930s and yeah. imposed on the 1880s or whatever. And so we've got Gene Autry and Western music, which it's beginning to be called, I believe. And there's another branch of Western music they talk about, which is Bob Wills and Western Swing. Right. What people seem to overlook, well, I guess it's not totally overlooked, but there's a certain jazz element in Western Swing, you know, that really, you know, that it, that is totally audible, you know, and kind of like, you know, needs to be discussed somewhere down the road, you know. Oh, absolutely. And 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 they've got Wynton Marsalis quoted here and and he's just identifying the features. You know, you got stride piano, call and response, yeah. improvised jazz solos, it's organized like a like a jazz band and you and you and they're playing swing rhythms. So, you know, it's absolutely a jazz derived style, but with the twist. You got fiddles and guitars, you know, but Wills added horns as he got more successful and ambitious, but fundamentally it's a fiddle and guitar band. And they're also right. a big polka beat. And that's one thing that I'm really, I'd really like to get a musicologist on because if you compare Bob Wills to the Count Basie Orchestra, Basie's already moving um, to a hi-hat kind of driven rhythm on the drums. And right. Bob Wills is about that bass drum and, and my guess is that's coming from the polka influence, which I just find fascinating. You know, there's so many ingredients in this stew, and that Texas, Czech, and German influence, I think, is real heavy on Bob Wills. 
Yeah, what's the swing? Even though you know, depending on who's doing it, it can get generic. I mean, it's like there's a lot of. I mean, it's a lot more eclectic than you than most people think. You know. Oh yeah, it definitely. Yeah. But when you know when you get Bob Wills doing it. And and Milton Brown as well. They mentioned Milton Brown. You know, he died in a in a car crash. I want to say 1936. Um, and you know, he had Bob Dunn on electric steel guitar, absolute pioneer. He was with Bob Wills and the Light Crust Doughboys, and and the two of them are generally considered the architects of Western right. swing. And we just don't know what Milton would have done had he lived, and and you know how big a profile he'd have. But it definitely makes sense to focus on Bob. Because he's the one right. who had the, the long career and the massive success. I mean, you know, New San Antonio Rose was a, a big hit for him as a country song. Then Bing Crosby covers it, and it's a massive, massive, massive popular success. And the funny part is, it's like, I mean, Tommy Duncan or whoever, see this thing, I mean, maybe not, well, Tommy Duncan, well, not just Tommy Duncan, but all the singers that Bob Wills had. You know, all all the time he was playing, they're all crooners. You know, yeah. So a Bob Wills tune would be like a natural for a Bing Crosby to sing, the the cover rather. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is one thing I think if there was anything they could have covered a little bit more, it was the number of country songs that Bing Crosby did in this period, or especially the World War II period, because he he also did Al Dexter's um, Pistol Pack and Mama, or Papa, and had another massive hit. He he had like, I'd say, 10 Western songs in that period. And later on, they're going to talk about Ray Charles in the 60s and his pop country and what a big impact that had. And, and being, Martin. yeah, and, and, and being in this period is really playing a huge role in popularizing country. But let's go ahead and, and hear our first song. And since we're talking about Bob Wills, um yeah. let's let's play here i'll give you a choice you want to hear take take me back to tulsa or roly-poly <laughs> how about take me back to tulsa all right here's bob wills and the texas playboys with take me back to tulsa And that was Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys with Take Me Back to Tulsa. And you can hear the whole mix in the snippet um, I, I selected. It's it's the swing start, fiddles, uh, a couple of verses of the lyrics, which, you know, it's a classic sort of blues number where they, they're taking extant verses and, and recombining them with, with the chorus. So... Yeah, the the formula is pretty well perfected at this point, and and Bob is got his regular stand in Tulsa uh, on KVOO every Saturday night. He's playing um, massive dance hall there in Tulsa, and and from that headquarters, from that home base, he's touring all over the Southwest, Texas, New Mexico, Kansas, um, and I and I read somewhere, but I've never tracked it down. I haven't been able to track it down recently, but supposedly. Uh, the Texas Playboys and the Count Basie band, when they were in the same town, would hang out and do late night jam sessions. And I, I would love to track that down. It's right up there. Edward was upset. Go ahead. 
I thought I heard that quote on the on the on the program because that sounds very familiar. You know, because I'm quite sure musicians. I mean, I don't know about the general public, but musicians being musicians, I'm quite sure those black jazz guys listening as hard West Swing guys the other way around. You know? Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And and Edward was obsessed with the idea that Ornette Coleman had played with the Texas Playboys mm-hmm. at one point when he was in Fort Worth, but he never could track that down. So, um, <laughs> you know. I'm going to keep keep looking for that one in Ed's memory. But anyway, the, so we've got the two big-time Western artists, and Gene Autry and Bob Wills, very different with the singing cowboy and the Western swing, but both Western and both on the Jimmy Rogers side of it. Like they talk about how the Jimmy Rogers is the honky-tonk and the drinking side of country, and the Carter family right. is the church and and uh, the the – down home side of country, the, the Sunday morning side of country. And so the two sort of icons of the Eastern style of country that, that they focus in on are Roy Acuff, who becomes a massive star on the Grand Ole Opry in the late 30s. And when the Grand Ole Opry is picked up by the NBC network, he's the host of that show. And that's really what elevates the Grand Ole Opry past um, the National Barn Dance out of Chicago and all the other competitors. And Roy Acuff becomes you know, an iconic country Western figure, like the great quote about the Japanese soldiers in Okinawa charging over the hill saying, you know, to hell with FDR, to hell with Babe Ruth, to hell with Roy Acuff. That's big time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, and then the other one that they, they cover is Bill Monroe, um, who hasn't quite perfected bluegrass yet, but he's in the thirties is with his brother, Charlie and the Monroe brothers which gives him a reason to talk about the bro- the brother acts, which is a big part of 1930s country. You know, you got the right. Monroe brothers, the Delmore brothers, the Blue Sky Boys, the Dixon brothers, on and on and on. This was this was a, a formula that was really successful in the 30s, and it continues through the 50s with the Leuven brothers and even on into the Everly brothers. Right, right. You know, but so, then, yeah, I mean, what's interesting about Monroe? You know, in general, it's like he was probably, you know, I mean, he was, uh, it's like he was probably like, you know, the first, one of the first country guys I can think of. I don't even know if they discussed this on the on the series, but he had a, you know, like the Carter family, he had a serious image, but un- unlike the Carter family, he knew how to blend it with um, with the uh, showbiz, because I mean, as you probably know, he didn't go out there wearing like, you know really exaggerated cowboy outfits. He came out there wearing like, you know, black suits, you know, and the cowboy, the cowboy had added to it, you know? I mean, there was like, I mean, if, 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 any, if any, any musician from that time really, really focused on like, you know, musicianship slightly over the showbiz, it was Bill Monroe. There was a certain stoicness to him that I think was there. Yeah, absolutely. And they, and they, they bring that up on the show and, and really emphasize how, you know, Judge Hay in the 20s and early 30s had, I don't know, force, but strongly encouraged his performers to really play up, you know, the 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 white face minstrel show bit, like to play up the yokel aspect. And the, the groups were called the fruit jar drinkers and et cetera. And Bill Monroe wasn't having any of that. He wasn't going to he wasn't, wasn't going to paint his face. You know, and he's out there wearing jodhpurs. I love that. Like, <laughs> you know, um, very, very styling guy and a very serious dude. And, and they, you know, they talk about his brother Charlie's response when he heard Bill's debut on the Grand Ole Opry. And he was like, you know, 
this is, you know, he's doing great now, but this is not going to last once I learn how hard he is to get along with. But Mel Monroe stayed with the Grand Ole Opry forever, and Charlie never got a look in. It's um, definitely out. I mean, Charlie Monroe is, is solid, but Bill Monroe and the creation of Bluegrass, I mean, this is a, a massive American music genius here. Yeah, that's the scary part about, you know, brother acts. It's like if if both of them make it, one is always like significantly bigger than the other, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It makes you think of the Dorsey brothers around the same time. And Tommy outpaced Jimmy, but not to the same extent. I mean, Bill Monroe basically laps Charlie. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's not even close. It, um, and, and as a brother duo... They put together a really solid body of work. I, I don't think they match the Delmore brothers, but the Monroe brothers are right up there and, and really solid. So those are the big and four. I, probably, Go ahead. Probably their own recordings to, I'm sorry. Charlie Charlie's recordings to me stand up on their own. He doesn't come off like the guy who was left behind. You know what I mean? They come oh, yeah. I don't know what he was like on stage, whether he had the charisma that Bill did or what have you. But it's like, I mean, he, his records hold their own. You know, if his last name wasn't Monroe and he was like some other guy, you figured, shoot, he's just as good. You know, choose him, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, really solid. But, you know, especially once Bill gets Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs in the band and, and perfects Bluegrass, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just not a fair comparison. I mean, not many people create their own genre of music that's as important as Bluegrass. I mean, it's, Right up there, to me, Bill Monroe and Charlie Parker are very analogous. And and the annoying thing is that these strikes that the Musicians Union had going on in the 1940s means we don't really get to hear the genesis of bluegrass. We get to hear Bill Monroe in the early 40s coming close, and we get to hear him in the mid-40s after the formula is pretty well perfected. But we don't have those transitional steps, just like we don't right. have – many of the recordings of what Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Christian and other guys were cooking up uh, in New York around the same time. So exactly. they do put the re- put the records like and if you listen to the records in like sequential order, it's like how they, if you don't if you're not looking at the dates, you're thinking, now how'd they make this quantum leap all of a sudden? You know? Yeah. That's because the, the years in between weren't documented, you know. So yeah. So by yeah. the time the recording band lifts, you know, then here they are like, you know, uh back on the beam again. You like you know like total uh, they like you know like just like I said make these they move like ten steps ahead it's like that that came from nowhere you know yeah and it's and it's a real loss and there's another loss through this whole period because the recording business collapses at the beginning of the depression and. You know, Jimmy Rogers dies in 1933, and he probably would have kept his recording contract. But even the Carter family gets dropped in 1934 by RCA Victor. And there's this whole generation of, of artists that played on the radio but never got to record. And so there's and, – and that was all over. I mean, live radio was the mainstay of country music in this, in this period of time. And they talk about that. They talk about how you know, these rural families couldn't afford – you know, every time you wanted to hear a new song on your record player, you had to go out and buy it. And that's serious money back then. That's, you know, 35 cents for a record. That's a steak dinner, which is crazy, but that's what it was. Oh, and, yeah. and, you know, but the radio, once you pay for it, it's just batteries or the electricity and, and you get all the music, you know, you, you want to hear. So radio to- totally dominated this period. Let's go ahead and play another song. And I was gonna, I was really trying hard to avoid 
playing songs they played on the show, but I can't resist playing this one. I'm going to play Maddox Brothers and Rose doing Woody Guthrie's Philadelphia Lawyer. I want to come back and we'll talk about it. A great Philadelphia lawyer was in love with a Hollywood maid. That was the Maddox Brothers and Rose and their hit version of Philadelphia Lawyer, written by Woody Guthrie. And they're going to come back and feature them again in the next episode when they're kind of a precursor to rock and roll. But in this period, they use them to personify the Oki experience, this migration. And they weren't even from Oklahoma. They were from much further east. But, but this migration of people from the east to the west, and they end up in California. And basically anybody who showed up in California in the 1930s who was a poor white person, didn't matter where you were from, you were an Oki, and it was a slur. And they hit those fields. They don't dig picking crops. And they really tell the story of just how they brainstormed, we're going to be a band. It, it's, uh, it's Merle Haggard tells it. And it's, it's just hilarious. But I also love that they work in Woody Guthrie because he's a guy who had a country radio show in California around the same time. He writes Philadelphia Liar. He also writes Oklahoma Hills that his cousin Jack Guthrie is going to make a country hit. But Woody Guthrie is somebody who gets sucked out of the country genre and becomes a folk artist, the the folk revival, the urban folk revival. But right, right. I'm glad that they that they brought him home and showed that he starts out as a country artist. Yeah, it's not that big of a leap from folk to country, at least back then, you know. And if you notice, when they were before country became like the established word, you know, I mean, I think at, but after they dropped Hillbill, I think they tried to market country as folk for a minute. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. For several years, and so you know that terminology, and it's accurate. You know, folk music has multiple meanings, and it basically means anybody who's not a professionally like conservatory trained musician who's making music that's folk music, but. You know, Woody ends up going to New York City and, and getting involved. You know, he and Lead Belly and, and Cisco Houston get, get involved with Pete Seeger and, and all these other, you know, uh, I'm, the word Yankee is on my tongue, but I don't want to use it in this context. That's a, a pejorative that's not <laughs> fair. But they, you know, they, they get into this urban scene and it's a left wing political scene and it just breaks very cleanly with the actual folk. And so it's an, it's an interesting distinction. But the fire purposes, Woody is here as a songwriter and influencing the Maddox brothers and Rose. And, um, you know, I was glad they, they got that in there. And then the other big human interest story that they focus on on this episode is the Carter family, who were one of the big stars they focused on last time. And they continued to tell the story and really focus in on Sarah Carter and her romance with her husband's cousin, Coy Baines. And I was really oh, happy yeah, that. that choir part of the story. <laughs> yeah. I was really happy they got that in there and really humanized her and told her story because um, like I was just trying to explain to Steph, Sarah Carter is the queen of country music. She's the first great singer in, in country music. And it's been so long and, and, you know, the Carter family's pretty forgotten, although their records have never gone out of print and, you know, 
there are many bands from that era that would love to be as well known as the Carter family is today. But I was really happy to see Sarah get the shine in this episode. For sure, for sure, yeah, yeah. And it, and it, and it's a powerful story, and they kind of epitomize this move from records to radio that happens because you know they they lose a contract with RCA Victor, although they're still Ralph Peer is still managing, they're still still involved in their career, still publishing AP Carter's songs or the songs AP Carter's putting his name on, but they go out right. to Del Rio, Texas, and work for this station XERA, which is a Mexican station just across the border, and. Um, our old friend, the goat gland doctor from Kansas, has been <laughs> you know, lost his medical license, but still has all the money he made, and has set up this five hundred thousand watt station on the border. I mean, they are broadcasting the Carter family literally across the continent. Right. And you know, it, it's it's epic, and they get they get Johnny Cash and um, Merle Haggard and others talking about you know the first country music they heard was was the carter family on here and and sort of the big lost opportunity is they were going to have a life magazine cover story that was going to be published the week of december 7th 1941 obviously other other things came up and um no uh, carter yeah. Family. <laughs> right <laughs> yeah and, and you know that and they cover sarah's ambivalence about this. I mean, she and AP divorced in the mid-30s, but Ralph Peer's wife talks Sarah into continuing as a professional relationship, and they make good money. I mean, they talk about how they're making like three times the national average income each when they're working in Mexico. And, um, you know, for a bunch of, of... And that may have done more wonders. I mean, like you said, it's like at that point, records are still a luxury. You know, and you could feed a family with 35 cents. So if you're going to choose between the steak dinner and the record, you're going to choose the steak every time. Yeah. I mean, listen to that radio, listen to the radio, you know, to the Carter family's show at whatever time it came on. That probably did just like a network TV show would today uh, or even or, or even YouTube, whatever. I mean, that kind of spread their fame. That's why so many people from that era knew their, their stuff so well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, they had sold a lot of records in the 20s, but a fraction of what Jimmy Rogers had sold. They were selling hundreds of thousands when he was selling millions. And yeah, this, this really brings him to a big audience. And it's Waylon Jennings, that's the other one, who is literally his first childhood memory was his father hooking up the car battery to the radio so the family could hear the Carter family at night. And Chet Atkins was another one. And, and then they tell the big story you know, of Sarah dedicating the song Tonight I'm Thinking of My Blue Eyes to Coy Bays right there on the air. And oh, Lord. Yeah, no, I mean, Drama City and, and his and I, parents. I think, I think AP caught it right away, too. I mean. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt he knew what was going on. And, and Coy gets in this car. His mom had been intercepting Sarah's letters to him, and he didn't know she was still thinking about him. And, and he jumps in his car and drives out there, and the two of them get married. And AP's so heartbroken that the, the radio sponsors actually send him home early because he's just a, a drag on on the show and you know ap carter is one of these weird figures he's he had to have been somewhere on the asperger's spectrum um or autistic spectrum he was just not a people person he had this unique gift and vision he's the guy that that realized that sarah and mabel had these talents and he could form them into a unit that could be a commercial entity and, and you know collected all these songs and wrote 
wrote songs in his own right. Um, but just, yeah, just an odd cat, an odd, fidgety, weird dude. And, and you know, Sarah couldn't handle being married to him because he was always traveling. shadowy, too. I mean, just kind of like, you know, one of those guys who was kind of like, you know, I mean, regardless of whether on the record or not, they're still credited. And, you know, I mean, you kind of wondered, okay, so with Sarah and Maybell doing the heavy lifting, you kind of wonder what's AP doing. But yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, he's he's putting the songs together. And he does have a few lead song numbers, and he does sing harmonies here and there. And uh, it's pretty powerful. He's got a unique, quavering voice, and they're just a really unique blend between Sarah's voice, Maybell's guitar style, and AP's vision, you know, one of the great country units. So, I mean, it was an obvious choice to cover the Carter family, but I thought they did a really good job. And there's an, um, some did. excellent biographies of the Carters as well that, that they were able to draw on. Um, yeah, and so let's let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll make that transition from the Depression to the World War II era. All right, and we are back. And so one of the transitions that happened in this period is Gene Autry had become a movie star in the 30s and a B-movie star. He was working for Republic Pictures, making a serial, serials, which is you know the short film they would show before the main feature. And the thing, it's hard to imagine what it was like to go to movies in the 1930s from the perspective of 2021. Very different deal. I mean, the movies were a big deal. There's no TV at home. There's no competition. If you want to see performers and hear them, the motion picture is absolutely at its zenith. And so it was a big deal. You'd go to the movie, you'd see a cartoon, you'd see a newsreel, you'd see a B, a short film. You might see almost. Like, it's almost like a review on video, you know, the way things they were set up then, back then, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes I'd even have a vaudeville act in between the movies. And, you know, 10-cent ticket, and you're there most of the day getting entertained. And so... Gene Autry was doing this crazy-ass serial for Republic where, as part of the plot, he's a singing cowboy who's got a radio gig, and then he's going underground and fighting this whole sci-fi uh, plot. <laughs> That's almost futuristic for back then, I mean, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's you know, this is the era of Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and all that, so I guess he's, he's, he's getting some of that mixed in there. But he had had a conflict with the republic and gene autry is one of these guys buck owens is probably the next great country music businessman um but gene autry actually gene autry is one of the all-time pop music magnates like this guy becomes one of the richest 500 people in the country by the end of his life he owned the california angels for a long time i mean nobody even oh, in the right. pop world made the kind of and money that the, the continental hyatt house which is later known as the Riot House. Yes, you know? yes, that's indeed. Why, the, the, the rock artists that came through L.A., you know, that's where they stayed. That was like the big spot, and that wouldn't be po that was possible because of uh, Mr. Autry. That's right. That's right. John Bonham and Iggy Pop wouldn't have had a place for all their debauchery without <laughs> that old Gene. And so, yeah, one he of the all-time. I mean, and you don't really see magnates of this of that order come out of music until you get to like Jay-Z and, and, and Puff Daddy and stuff in the 21st century. So although but backing up a few, Roy Acuff was kind of like that too, because he had, he got into song publishing early on. 
Yeah, absolutely. Know? Absolutely. He was he was very successful as well, just not quite as successful as Gene Autry, and probably because he stuck with music, where Gene, at a certain point, by the 50s and 60s, is pretty much out of the music and movie game. Um, but he has a nice long run and uh, has a financial dispute with Republic that he sorts out. He, you know, he holds out. They even bring up Roy Rogers, who's been um, singing with the Sons of the Pioneers as under his given name, Leonard Sly. They turn him into Roy Rogers and, and have him going, but it's not quite the same. Gene holds out. He gets his wish, gets his bigger contract, comes back, and is immediately back to be a number one singing cowboy. And is bigger than ever, but when the war starts, he volunteers and is doing some serious, serious combat stuff. Like he's flying planes in Burma, I think. I mean, heavy-duty stuff and, and takes several years off and never really recovers his career momentum to the extent he did. But, um, you know, can't, can't knock it uh, in that period. And, you know, Bob Wills also joins the military, although not the same kind of sterling service record that Gene Autry yeah. put together. Um, but he's in there for a couple of years and then, and then comes out to California and, and is outdrawing, you know, um, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, like is a big, big deal on the West coast. So it's a period of time when country music is exposed to many, many people. And part of that is because of World War II and all of the population mixing that's going on. There's a great migration of both black and white Southerners out of the South to places like LA and Dallas and Chicago, anywhere they're building uh, you know, weapons for the war. They need workers. People are leaving the farms and, and the, the country is becoming much more urbanized. And I think they do a good job of, of explaining how this is the moment when country really becomes a national form rather than just a regional one. Right, right. I mean, it's pretty gradual, too, because there's going to be, like, as the series progresses, there will be several big bang moments like that where people finally say, oh, country music has come to town, you know? And this is pretty much an early step as far as entrepreneurship and all the things that you mentioned, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, it's just a period when a lot of people hear country music for the first time, whether it's, you know, the Grand Ole Opry on NBC radio across the country, or whether it's somebody in their barracks who brought his guitar from his home in Alabama. And, you know, you get a Jewish kid from New York who's never heard country before, an Italian kid from Cleveland, never heard country music before. And a lot of these guys discovered they really like country. So, you know, it's, it's a whole period. And there's another character. Even wound up influencing a lot of R&B R&B artists to an extent because there's a lot of I know there's a lot of rhythm blues singers from a certain generation. They listen to country either because that's all they get, or they were preachers' kids, you know, and the preacher didn't want them to listen to anything worldly, which meant like jazz or rhythm and blues. But for some reason, country made the cut, you know. So there they were listening to whoever was begging country, and that kind of stayed with them as they aged, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Ray Charles, Muddy Waters was a huge Gene Autry fan um, and wanted yeah. to record that when Alan Lomax came out and found him in the in the plantation in Mississippi. And they were like, no, no, let's be <laughs> <Yep. laughs> the, like the, yeah. the blues. But yeah, no, that's that's, you know, very, very true. And, um, you know, and they and they talk about the, the whole Grand Ole Opry experience. They 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 mentioned Grandpa Jones and his origin. 
I think with the radio station in West Virginia at a time when he just sounded old. And so they started calling him grandpa and he dresses up as an old man, but eventually he's going to grow into that costume, kind of the way Groucho Marx yeah. grew into his grease paint. But the big Opry star they really focus in on is Minnie Pearl, who is Roy Acuff's right hand when he's leading the grand, the syndicated shorter version of the Grand Ole Opry that goes out on NBC. And that's a fascinating story, right. one I didn't really know. But, you know, she was uh, born and bred Sarah Ophelia Colley and uh, went right. to, you know, a fancy finishing school and is also one of these New Deal type people. Like they don't get that explicit with it, but she's working in Atlanta with one of these theater companies and their whole job is to go out to small towns and teach people how to put on their own plays and their own shows. And that is classic big government, new deal type investment. And, you know, we get many Pearl out of the deal and, and she, you know, she forms this character and from living with, you know, these families like that. She lived in a, with a family in Sand Mountain, Alabama, who ran out of names for their kids. They got more kids than they got names. So they just call one boy brother. And she, she makes that a character in her show. And, and, um, creates their town grinder switch and you know the rest is history i mean Minnie pearl was in institution on the grand Ole opry into she the 1990s whole diorama in her mind of characters and she's kind of like brought that to uh the stage it's pretty interesting yeah yeah it, it's it's fascinating it's also telling i think that the comedy is always a part of country music and you know they 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 don't pull any punches. I mean, they talk about how the Grand Ole Opry was still running blackface acts way late. And, um, but at the same time, they use a lot of those kind of minstrel comic conventions and just change the butt of the joke from black folks to white folks. And, you know, hee haw in the seventies is still doing routines that were, old 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 minstrel jokes you know and and but they but they updated with with like the timing of like say laughing you know exactly that's the whole uh hee-haw hee-haw mix and so let's so hear you know it's like still like you know we know it's still like you no know, basically what the grand old opera was doing like you know 20 30 years earlier so yeah you know yeah it, it's absolutely um you know it's it's this is the most conservative genre in American music. And so, yeah, they're, they're recycling and, and preserving old stuff. So sort of like the kinks, but for, for a whole culture. And so let's hear um, a, little bit, a, a little bit of Roy Acuff. When we come back, we'll talk about what he did that was different. And let's hear uh, Roy Acuff's, Acuff doing the Wabash Cannonball. From the great Atlantic Ocean to the wide Pacific shore. From the queen of flowing mountains to the south bell by the shore. She's mighty tall and handsome and known well by all. She's the combination on the Wabash Cannonball. That was Roy Acuff singing the Wabash Cannonball, a song he didn't actually sing the lead on on the record, but that version, that's him singing around 1940, 41, when he becomes a big star. You know, Roy Acuff's an interesting guy. He doesn't become a singer until pretty late in life, and he's in his mid-30s before he becomes a star. So this is very much not your sort of 
Sex Pistols or New Kids on the Block. This is not a punk kid. This is a grown man who had abandoned his dreams of being a professional athlete because of sunstroke he caught on a fishing trip. And so, you know, kind of has to woodshed and go back home and, and take up the fiddle in a serious way. It seems like there are very few punk kids in uh, country music, at least back then. It's like all the people that we've been talking about so far, it seems like they had a past before they became stars. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, because the Carter family didn't like arrive full blown on what they had when they were 21 or 20. You know what I mean? Definitely not. And and yeah, and I think that that's something that's very important about country and, and kind of creates the opportunity for rock and roll to tear itself away from country when Elvis comes along in the 50s, because country becomes a medium for adult topics. Um, right. You know, and in this period, it's, mo- you know, especially with Roy Acuff and stuff, it's a lot of churchy type stuff, like The Great Speckled Bird, uh, what, yeah. which was his first big hit song on the Opry. That's that's a totally religious song. And, you know, Roy Acuff, they, they quote him in this saying, you know, the difference between me and Bob Wills, and this is one of many differences between him and Bob Wills, but the, Bob mm-hmm. Wills played beer halls and dance joints. And Roy Acuff is playing school gymnasiums. He's playing church auditoriums. You know, he's he's uh, doing re- tent revivals. It came out of a medicine show background. Um, well, that's you know, the thing. It's like, it's sec- it's, even though like a good fifty percent of his repertoire is secular, I mean, he, I mean, he, if he's done like a couple albums like Hank Hank Williams type stuff, you know how like you know how uh, how worldly he can be, you know. But by the same token, it's like I mean, you don't, you know, Roy Acuff isn't party time music, you know. I mean, he's not quite like, you know, she's not quite the Chuck Wagon Gang either. You know, no. he's like, you know, there's like a, I mean, there's like a certain, I don't know what to say, you know, uh, he's rooted in a lot of ways that Bob Wills isn't. I mean, it's like Bob Wills is definitely like, you know, mu- music for like, you know, carrying on, you know, and getting drunk and like, you know, just hanging out in the town. You know, whereas with Roy Acuff, that's more for the stay-at-homes. Yeah. That's the way it comes off, you know. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and my mom hated Roy Acuff. She, she used to make fun of Wreck on the Highway all the time. And she's, you know, an Okie, grew up in the Depression, picked cotton. But her family thought they were a little bit better than the country music listeners. And so, she, you know, she, her parents listened to classical. She listened to swing. And that Roy Acuff Wreck on the Highway, I didn't hear nobody pray. Whenever she wanted to make fun of our super religious cousins... <laughs> That's that's mm-hmm. the line she would drop. And so, you know, but Roy was loud and proud with his faith and, and his commitment to country. And he's very much, um, you know, conti- he saw himself as a traditionalist. He rejected the Western motif that a lot of even Eastern country artists are, are dressed up like cowboys. He rejected that, but he also didn't do the yokel stuff. Like originally, his band was the Crazy Tennesseans, but he gets on the Grand Ole Opry. They become the Smoky Mountain Boys, and and I think this is a good thing that they draw out, which we is that yo-yo gimmick. <laughs> yeah, and the 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 real difference with Roy Acuff is that somebody like even a great singer like Riley Puckett with Gid Tanner and the Skillet Lickers, that was a string band that had a singer. With Roy Acuff and the Smoky Mountain Boys, it's a singer who's got a backup band. And this is very much – this is happening at the same time as Frank Sinatra is emerging out of the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra and becoming the star. I mean for a whole decade, right. you know, people like Jimmy Rogers and Bing Crosby were pretty unique in that they were star singers. And 
now in the 40s, it becomes the norm for the singer to be the star rather than the band to well, be the even, star. Even in posture, there's something very different that kind of sets Roy Akoff, you know, away from, like, apart from other country singers. It's like, you look at, like, say, you know, the people we've discussed, like, like, uh, like Bob Wills, his singers, you know, or Bill Monroe. And it's like, you know, I mean, as different as they are, it's like, I mean, they really do come off like, you know, these are country people and they're going to do like, you know, their version of Rock, Rock the Beer Hall on a Saturday night. It's like most photos I've seen of Roy Acuff, he looks like a Sunday school teacher. Yes. Just in posture, in the suits he wears. I mean, it's like it's the way he carries himself, you know. And again, we know now that I mean, he's not, he's, while he's done a share of gospel records, he's not, he wasn't a full-time gospel singer. But I mean, he carried himself like one, you know, even when he's, even when you're saying like total non, uh, well, well, I mean, Roy Cuffs, as best I can tell, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's not the kind of guy to be singing songs about sleeping around with another, with another, with another man's woman, you know? Yeah. That, no, that was, that, that, that wouldn't have been what he was about, you know? But again, it's like, I mean, he was like, like I said, it's like, you know, he's kind of had that Sunday school thing going on, you know, with his whole presentation. And I think visually that kind of set him apart too, you know? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and you know, Roy Acuff is going to go on to be the star and the conscience of the Grand Ole Opry. Like, he's the guy that tut-tuts when Bob Wills brings a drum kit to the Grand Ole Opry the one time he played there. And, and he's the guy who gives Elvis Presley the side eye the one time he plays at the Grand Ole Opry. So he kind of becomes the moral authority of the Grand Ole Opry. And, and, and it's kind of the hard ass on Hank Williams when Hank has his struggles and, and you know – performs less than up to his own standards on occasion at the Opry. And Roy Acuff's kind of the guy who brings the hammer down on that kind of stuff. So, and they also talk about another transition that happens around this time and they put it in context. And and this is DeFord Bailey, who we talked about a lot in the last episode, the only African-American performer on the Opry really until Charlie Pride years later. And he is unceremoniously fired right around this time in the early forties and it's because, allegedly, because of this dispute between ASCAP, the song publishers union that, that collects the royalties for the songwriters, and BMI, which is a song collective that the radio station has formed because ASCAP was trying to double their rates. So, you know, every time you play an Ir- Irving Berlin song, you're going to have to pay us twice as much. And they pretty much had the, the market cornered. But the thing is that the great American songbook guys, you know, this is the group that represented Irving Berlin and Cole Porter and Harold Arlen and those, that, that kind of guys, they had always treated the country songwriters as second class citizens and the black songwriters as second class citizens and never really gave them the full protection of ASCAP. So when BMI comes along, people like Ralph Peer are only too happy to move their massive country catalogs into BMI. And within a couple of years, they've got 36,000 songs in their catalog. But there's this period of time when you can't play an ASCAP song on the radio because the radio station owners have banned it. And poor old DeFord Bailey, all his all his material were ASCAP songs. And right. You know, he's in his early 40s at this period of time. And, and you know, if I remember correctly, the, the official the official explanation was that he re, 
something like uh, I think Judge Hay or somebody said something like it was Judge like Hay. Many yep. members of his, thank you. Like many members of his race, he is lazy and refused to uses re, refuses to learn any new songs. Am I correct? You are correct. Yes, it's shameful, shameful, yeah, yeah, shameful yeah. stuff. And uh, right, yeah, and, yeah it's like as, as long as the Ford barely lived. I mean, I think he was he, he was interviewed a few times, but he never got back to recording. I wouldn't nope. be surprised if he was a little embittered by that. But yeah. Yeah, they did finally bring him back in the '60s uh, to to perform on the Grand Ole Opry again. But yeah, I mean, he had to go out on his own uh, after this, and and he did set himself up with a successful business. So you know, uh, not not a sad sack by any means. But and and they have a good quote from Wynton Marsalis in this that they that he sums it up as the gene pool cries out for diversity, but tribal tradition calls for sameness. America, we're caught between those two things. Our music has ended up being segregated, but that's not what the origins of the music would lead you to believe would be its trajectory. And that's just classic. And it's the business and the powers that be behind the scenes that have segregated American music. You know, it wasn't yeah. Muddy Waters who insisted on only doing blues. It, you know, it wasn't that there was the shortage of black string bands to, to do traditional country in the 20s. It was people like Ralph Pierce saying, no, you're black, you're going to do blues, you're white, you're going to do country. Um, right. And, and you know, this is a particularly brutal example where this big money, big, big money is involved here in this fight between BMI and ASCAP. And to Ford Bailey's just roadkill, um, you know, collateral damage here. And, you know, the music becomes artificially segregated. There's no reason that there couldn't have been another dozen Charlie Prides 20, 30 years earlier. There were plenty, plenty of black folks doing great country music in the 30s, I have no doubt. But they just could not yeah. get a look in. And, uh, exactly. you know, it, it, it sets us back. And, and you know, and, and that's why like we talked about last time, Ken Burns is always focused on this issue because it's the fundamental American issue. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad they continue to cover it, but for the next couple episodes, it's going to be very white because the, the business is, you know, viciously segregated and right. You know, it's, it's, uh, it is what it is. And the funny part is, I mean, it's like, I mean, even though I'm jumping a little bit ahead of, ahead, ahead of uh, the story here, it's like, it's kind of flattering in a way. It's like, as you say, even though the next couple of chapters are going to be pretty, going to be mighty white, you know, it's kind of interesting how, how the, it seems like, at least I don't know about how it was at the time, but it seems like looking back, it seems like Nashville and the country industry as a whole was really, really grateful towards Ray Charles. You know, yes. there was like, there was like, there was like very little, you know, uh, covert racism as far as accepting him, you know, as a legit term of country music. They really, they really, I mean, it was like he was the first to, do, I mean, he, he was the first, you know, non-country singer to do country standards. And he wasn't the first black person either, because not to take away from Ray, but Brooke Benton, you know, he was an R&B singer who was popular in the late six, late 50s, and early 60s. And like maybe a year before Ray Charles came out with Modern Sounds and Country Western Music, uh, uh, Brooke Benton had this LP called The Bull Weevil Song and 11 other songs or something like that, some generic title like that. But it's like, it was like all these old folk standards that he and or his producer had put their names on. So they were kind of the public domain. But uh, it was basically like doing like R&B, like, like Ray Charles, an R&B version of um, these country standards. There were a couple of hits off that LP, Frankie and Johnny and the Bo Weevil song. You know, and a lot of those songs yep. went back to the Carter family and everybody we're discussing right now. 
you know, and uh, even though it, 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 you know, uh, again, it's like, I mean, it's kind of amazing the gratitude that the, that the country of uh, feels felt when Ray Charles did all those songs, you know, I mean, matter of fact, I think it was Loretta Lynn who said something like, you know, um, she thought that Ray Charles really legitimized country when he did what he did, you know, and for that tribute to be paid to uh, an established black, an established black performer before the civil rights movement. That's really amazing. You know, and, and I think it was just raw power because Ray was selling so many records, and people like Don Gibson were getting such big royalty checks. <laughs> right, right. Pretty hard to ignore. But let's play our last song. Uh, this is uh, Bill Monroe doing um, Blue Yodel number seven. They play him doing Mule Skinner Blues on the show, but this is another Blue Yodel he cut around the early 1940s. was Bill Monroe and his version of Jimmy Rogers Blue Yodel number seven. And and I, I like the way they did a good job of tying in how influential Jimmy Rogers was. Because again, he's somebody who's very forgotten in this point when, you know, coming up on 90 years since since he was living. But huge influence on Gene Autry, huge influence on Bob Wills. Merle Haggard t- tells a great story about Bob Wills and how much he loved Jimmy Rogers and and also on Bill Monroe, who's in the sort of Carter family side of things, he's doing the Eastern style country and Jimmy's kind of the father of, of Western style country, but it's good to show that, you know, he, he was influential on, on the whole shebang. So uh, we're coming up on, on wrapping up now. I'm trying to think any other main points we need to hit here. Hmm. Offhand. I don't know. because It seems like you've covered a lot, you know, I mean, having having seen the, the the special when it aired, you know, plus um, reading over like you know some things, you know, I mean, it really does seem like you know we've uh, we've kind of we we kind of hit the main points we need to, yeah. Yeah, there's one one last thing that flipping through my notes here. They bring up Pee Wee King, who's an interesting character. He's best known for doing the Tennessee Waltz, which becomes a a big right. pop standard in the early '50s. But he's actually the guy who discovered Roy Acuff and brings him to the Opry. And he's a guy from Wisconsin who plays an accordion. And to me, this really shows how fluid this genre is. And and it's not totally formed. I mean, the steel guitar has been electrified in this period, but it's not the dominant instrument. It's going to be in the second half of the 40s and in the 50s. So, yeah, going back and listening to some Pee Wee King records, getting ready for this it's real interesting to hear that kind of hardcore country with an accordion uh, doing basically the rhythm guitar part. And um, so, yeah. And this, not only that, but you mentioned he was from Wisconsin. It seems like there is no monolithic state. There's no monolithic state, excuse me, you know, where a country seems to be like, you know, born and bred. It seems like it can happen anywhere. There's like a significant white rural community, you know? Yep. I mean, yep. Wisconsin, you know, I mean, Chicago quite has kept, We've had a country, uh, we, we, we had a country scene all that time, you know, with WLS barn dance and all, you know, but yep. somehow or another, I mean, it kind of like, you know, whittled down to, I mean, like Nashville, number one and Bakersfield coming in at a Bakersfield, California coming in at a distant number two, 
Yep, yep. It's easy to forget uh, what a national music this was. And basically, yeah, a lot of, of those Scandinavian-type immigrants that were there in Wisconsin and, and Minnesota and others, they found country as a logical outlet for their their native musics that they they brought over here and Americanized. So yeah, I wanted to mention Pee Wee King. And so that's pretty much it for this this episode. Um, next time we'll be back, we'll be talking about the post-war era. This is when it becomes honky-tonk. And so it's going to be a very different, very different episode. Going to be a lot of Hank Williams next time. So for James Porter, thanks for listening. We'll be back on Let It Roll. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Country Roll will be back next week when James and Nate discuss Episode 3, The Hillbilly Shakespeare, Hank Williams, and the post-war boom that country music enjoyed. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.